What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Dan Favalli. Remember to search Blue Wire Buckets in iTunes or Spotify for more NBA content. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Hardwood Knox podcast. I am Dan Favalli, your second favorite co-host around these parts. On today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Greg Wissinger of Sacktown Royalty. He's the editor for the Sacktown Royalty, SB Nation's blog for the Sacramento Kings. Uh, he knows his stuff. We're excited to talk to him. As you can tell, we're going to be doing our Sacramento Kings offseason deep dive. Uh, their outlook after going 39 and 43 this season is super interesting. They have a ton of cap space, a couple needs that they could look to fill. Um, they did fire Dave Yeager, uh, front office underwent some changes as well. Vlade really cleaned house in a sense. De'Aaron Fox exploded. Marvin Bagley played really well for his rookie season to the point where Luka Doncic jokes weren't as funny after that. Uh, don't worry, I pick his brain about a lot. Even if you're not a religious follower of the Sacramento Kings, you're going to really enjoy this podcast. You can follow him on Twitter, at GWISS, that's at G-W-I-S-S, at G-W-I-S-S. My typical housekeeping notes, can you please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Hardwood Knox on iTunes? We really appreciate it when we see those numbers go up. Subscribe to us wherever else you get your podcast if need be, whether it's Art19, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. We're, we're basically everywhere. Still, we really like to see those ratings and reviews go up on iTunes. So our call to action, we beg every single episode, just take the 10 to 15 seconds out of your day and do it. Make sure you're following the pod on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. You can find Andy on Twitter at Andrew D. Bailey. And if you haven't checked out the Blue Wire Podcast Network yet, what are you doing? Uh, follow them at Blue Wire Pods. We're pumping out content there left and right. If it's NBA you crave, we have Blue Wire Buckets, which analyzes what's going on in the playoffs and around the league three times a week. Other fantastic basketball pods that chase down light years, cash considerations. Check us out. Check out some of the other podcasts that we have as well. We're really good with NFL stuff, and, and we're continuing to grow. So follow Blue Wire Pods, too. With all of that out of the way, though, we get to Sacktown Royalties, Greg Wissinger. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andy Bailey. I am, however, super excited to be joined by Greg Wissinger from Sacktown Royalty. He's the editor over there. And as you can probably tell from, from that name, uh, we are going to do our off-season outlook deep dive into Sacramento. Uh, if you want to follow Greg, and you should, fantastic follow on Twitter, he is at GWISS. That's at G-W-I-S-S. And be sure to check out the stuff they do over at, at Sacktown Royalty as well. Uh, before we get into some nuts and bolts stuff on Sacramento, I have to ask, how are you doing tonight, Greg? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Um, you are doing better than the Raptors are doing anyway, as we record this. Um, so Sacramento, to I to, to get started looking at their outlook, probably needs to start with the Dave Yeager dismissal. And there was, on Twitter, there was the whole Kangs thing and them they were criticized for for how it went down. Uh, you have such a great season. You spent most of it like kind of on the fringes of the playoff race. You were four games under five hundred, and then to can that coach f you exceed expectations, no matter the drama. The optics seem bad, but I also think there's something to not marrying yourself to the results of a surprise season. And if you think that another guy is right, a better long term fit, you might as well go out there and get him. I was wondering what you thought of the whole situation or if this front office slash Vlade has earned that type of benefit of the doubt yet. 
Well, I definitely don't think they've earned benefit of the doubt. Um, there was a, a pretty big outcry, and and a lot of that was from us initially. You know, our first reaction was, okay, here we go again. You know, Kings fans are still salty over the way the team dismissed Michael Malone. You right. know, and and so there, it's always kind of a touchy spot when someone actually does good and then you get rid of them. Um, but a lot of fervor from Kings writers, Kings fans, I think a lot of it went away in the days that followed because it was complete radio silence from any Kings players. Not a single one was like, Oh, it's a business. Thanks for what you taught me. Code. Like <laughs> there was, there was nothing like nobody said a word. Like, and it was like, okay, well maybe he lost the locker room. And if that's the case, yeah, you get rid of the coach. Like it doesn't matter if you win games. Like if he doesn't have the support of that locker room, it can make sense to get rid of him. So <laughs> all in all, like I'm fine with getting rid of him. Like, he obviously had more success than most coaches have had in Sacramento, mm-hmm. but you know, he, he also had his issues. I mean, he had the same old Dave Yeager issues he's had everywhere else. You know, Marvin Bagley still wasn't starting at the end of the season, even though anyone watching the Kings could see that he needed more minutes. I mean, it, he just kind of still had some of those same old hangups, his same substitution patterns, uh, the exact things that we dismissed when Memphis fans tried to warn us. Uh, so, you know, it, all in all, I think we're kind of fine with it. It's just the the sentiment after that was, okay, if you're doing this, you just have to get the next one right. And obviously there's some uh, interesting things happening there, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all works out. Yeah, that, the Luke Walton stuff uh, is just, it's all TBD, just everything from the, the legal problems to how he's going to actually do with the Kings. I, I But that was a good point on Jaeger, too, was he stabbed Lyle Mahons in the back in Memphis, basically. He tried to get to the Minnesota Timberwolves at one point while he was in Memphis, I believe. And so it really wouldn't surprise you. He had the whole, uh, there was the report from Sam Amick. I think it was talked about a bunch of times, too, during the season about the power struggle going on between him and Brandon Williams in the front office. And so if there's really that many problems in year, uh, what was this? Was this two for him? Year, it was year two, right? No, year see, one? this was this was year three for him. Oh, I don't know why I felt shorter. I would think it would be an eternity there. So I guess if all that stuff's happening, it's not, you know, I, it, again, it's TBD. It just doesn't, like you said, after I think the initial outcry, it's just because of the team that was doing it. But when you step back, like how big of a loss is it really? And particularly the Bagley stuff, it's almost impressive that, you know, when the Kings were contending for a playoff berth, I think you gave Jaeger leeway or like from, from when you zoom out, like if the, even if the organization wanted him to play the youngsters, if, if he's coaching for a, a playoff berth, you understand it. But as you get later in the season and Bagley still not getting a, enough minutes, that's like, that's just inexcusable. Well, and it wasn't even that. It was that watching the games, you could see that, okay, if you're wanting to put your best foot forward, like Bagley was playing better than Willie Cauley-Stein and he still couldn't get, you know, the minutes over him a lot of time. Uh, What's interesting, and and I think this kind of got lost in the the headlines, was that Brandon Williams got fired on the same day. Like he's gone too. So it's not that he won that power struggle. It's that uh, Vladi kind of cleaned house. And he like really cleaned house. Like there wasn't there, they got rid of the PR guy there too. Yeah, that was something uh, that was unrelated. That was a, a whole separate thing. Um, so um, looking at the biggest part or one of the biggest aspects of the King season, uh, De'Aaron Fox, even I think if most optimists would have expected tremendous improvement from his rookie season, I don't know that anyone would have expected this. There was probably a strong case for him as a top 30-ish player this year, which is a, a pretty big deal. Was there anything, though about him that impressed you more than you ever could have imagined even if it's saying if you thought like let's fast forward three years down the line and he wouldn't be able to do this the thing I pointed out to you in the bullet point for me and this is just someone so far removed from the situation I never expected his pull-up three to become like a viable weapon um, at least not this soon and yet he doubled his pull-up volume from year one to year two and he he shot it was close to 36 percent on them and so just watching him a speedster seems like really just high IQ. I'm just wondering if there's anything that 
he did, and it wasn't even just a matter of, wow, he's developed so quickly that maybe you just didn't think was going to happen for at least a few years. I mean, the big thing with him was that, you know, he plays so fast. Like, that's his natural speed. But, you know, you always talk about guys as the game slows down for them. And it was kind of a question mark of, you know, is he a guy who can dial it back? Is he a guy who always needs to be going that fast? And the way he exhibited just total control of his game this year, I mean, it was a night and day difference from his rookie season where he did seem overwhelmed at, at times, just, you know, normal rookie stuff. And also, like I said, the shooting. I mean, he shot like 30% from three in a, his rookie season. He finished the season on a bit of a slump and still finished it over 37% this year. Like, if you had told me or told anyone going into the draft that he was going to be a 37% three-point shooter, like, he'd have been considered, you know, easily one of the best prospects in that draft. I mean, he was still top five, so it's not like he was, you know, slept on or anything like that. But, I mean, that was the big question mark in his game was can he ever figure out how to shoot? And the fact that he did it in year two and did it in a way where even if he's not, you know, 40% shooter, he's at least good enough that defenses can't just leave him out there. They have to respect it. You know, you're not going to run into a Ben Simmons situation where defenses can totally sag off and clog the lane on him. And when when I caught some of the few games later in the season of his rookie year, he did, even though they weren't falling, like whether it was late in games, whether it was after these, you know, full court runs or if he was operating in the half court, he did seem very just comfortable taking those types of shots off the dribble. Again, even if they weren't going in. And I think there's probably something to be said for that for someone who's so young, even doing it in your sophomore season. Oh, for sure. I mean, he's very comfortable with a shot and it's a good looking shot. You know, and that was one thing that we kind of held out some hope on after his rookie season was that even though his shots were missing, you know, a lot of them were online. They were just a little short. Um, he doesn't miss a ton side to side. It's usually just kind of having the distance right. And as we chalked a lot of that up to conditioning and he proved it right. I mean, even when he's missing, the line is good. His shot is good. Like there's reason to believe that it's sustainable, that it's not just going to be a one-year fluke. Obviously, we have to wait and see. You know, Sometimes guys have a great year and, and then take a step back again, but uh, there's a lot of encouraging signs to suggest that he's going to be good. He's got to be officially the fastest player in the NBA, right? I can't think of anyone that would come close right now, he's, especially after John Wall's injury. Yeah, I mean, he's ridiculous. He is so fast. Like... it's unreal watching him like he just has that different gear where he moves through a defense like everyone else is standing still and he's in complete control i it it's amazing to watch uh do you think we get a buddy healed extension this summer i don't know if it'll happen this summer or not i mean i'd be in favor of it i i think that they should lock him up but i would be surprised if the kings don't uh but you know, you never know with the Kings. I mean, as much as I like to discourage Kings jokes, I mean, they're it's an earned joke, right? I mean, the the Kings have been themselves for a long time, and Vladdy's still at the helm. So, you know, how much has really changed? Uh, right. So we'll see. But all in all, I'd be surprised if they didn't. He's been good enough. He's earned it. Uh, I don't think there's really a reason you wouldn't want to give it to him. So, uh, I I think it'd probably get done. He seems like one of those players where it makes more – normally I would be in favor, even for teams that aren't necessarily free agent destinations, normally I would be in favor of, uh, you know, don't put that money on the books just yet. You can wait it out into restricted free agency. But I don't know what his ultimate number would be in the extension, but his cap hold is going to be like $14.6 million if they let him go to restricted free agency anyway. And so if you can get him for something less or similar, because he feels like a player uh, where – whatever deal he does sign, whether it's an extension or restricted free agency, people who think that he's just a specialist are going to think it's too much. But I also think there's an opportunity where if he's really good this season, like that's then someone that could be entertaining mega offers uh, next summer. And I know he's a little bit older, so maybe that tamps down his market. But if you can lock him up now for something that's – and I don't maybe this is unreasonably low or high. I don't know how you feel, but if, if around 14 or – Fifteen million a year is probably just a fair price point, and allows you, I think, just adequate flexibility, and it helps just knowing, okay, that money's on the books, and we can plan around it. 
Yeah, for sure. And and I don't know if if yeah, you know, I'm bad at figuring out where numbers are going to come in at. You know, personally, I'd be very comfortable extending him at somewhere around 14 a year. That that'd be a no brainer to me. Um, you know, whether he's going to get the advice that that's a good number for him to accept, yeah, I think that's probably where the question would come in. But I'd have no issues with giving him a, a sizable extension just because I've seen how hard he works and how much he works on developing the weaknesses in his game. You mentioned that he's not just a shooter. I mean, really, his rookie season when he came to Sacramento from the Pelicans, he couldn't dribble two steps without losing the ball. Now he can dribble through traffic. He can create plays for others. You know, he can get other guys involved. I mean, he's developed and improved all the different aspects of his game. You know, from passing, dribbling. You know, obviously, the scoring is moving up as things go up, but. A lot of that's because he's become more than just a deep threat. Like he can take guys off the dribble, he can you know, hit a mid range, he can get to the rim. You know, so I I would be very comfortable knowing that he's probably not at his final version of himself yet. I was when I was doing some research before I sent over topics to you. Uh, I was surprised to know that he or find out that he shot forty three point six percent on step back threes this year, and it was it wasn't like. It was it was a healthy volume too, and I, I oh yeah. So he was taking them. I just I never really realized that he was hitting them at at such a high clip. And they also ran uh, or had him run, and they weren't a team that I think necessarily ran an absurd amount, or at least relied on the ball handlers so much out of pick and rolls. Because um, you look at who's behind De'Aaron Fox, but I was surprised that they had him run so many pick and rolls too. And that speaks to your point of how far he's come if he had such a problem. Uh, dribbling when he first came over and even last uh last season uh the past two seasons really he's he's at least kept his turnovers in those situations a little bit more under control so it's it's definitely a more expansive arsenal than I think he's ever credited for on the offensive end yeah and I mean it some of this kind of sounds uh, a little hyperbolic but really he just had one of the best three-point shooting seasons the league has ever seen and you know, we're kind of numb to it now because we're in that age, right? You know, with with Steph and Clay and those guys, but and, and he's he's you know just barely a step below what they're doing. I mean, you look at like the top ten three point shooting seasons of all time. You know, it's a bunch of Steph seasons, a couple Clay seasons, and then like Buddy's right in the mix there. I mean, he he had a truly incredible season. It just gets overshadowed by the other players that are out there in this era. And it's even like, and he was one of those players where you were watching him and it's, oh, he just scored, you know, 20 something points. And it just didn't even seem like he was like, not, I don't want to use the term that it came effortlessly, but it, it came so much within the flow of the offense, even when it wasn't just these catch and shoot opportunities. And so, I mean, you know, shooting almost 43% from three on nearly eight attempts per game is just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he, when I was looking at his step back numbers, I saw that, uh, Bogdanovich had, I, I, he was at almost 40% on step back three pointers in semi healthy volume, too. So, my one note is the Kings might, I don't think, I can't think of a team that has two guys that can take step back threes, like those off the dribble step, not even just pull up threes, but those step back threes off the dribble. And so, I, I might nominate them as the best step back three duo in the NBA right now, unless there is, I can't mm-hmm. think of another pairing, to be honest. Yeah. Are you over the Willie Cauley Stein experience? <laughs> oh, I yes, <laughs> very much so. Um, you know, it's one of those things where he, he's a talented guy, and and when he was engaged in games, he could look amazing. He just is so inconsistent, and you know, for what he's looking to get paid in free agency this summer, uh, I'd rather him be some other team's inconsistent headache, and the Kings get similar production from a guy who will do it night in and night out where you, at least you know what you're going to get uh, for a, a lower cost. <laughs> yeah. And I would think that, and my follow-up question that would be, do you think they're going to let him walk in restricted free agency? And I would almost, I would have thought it was a no brainer, but just the way that big men get squeezed in the market now, I don't know if it's going to be a situation where his price might end up being so whatever they just bring him back. Yeah. And that's the tricky part, right? Cause you're right. I mean, it, if he, yeah, I don't know where the cutoff point is for the Kings because no one really knows what they're thinking with him. But 
you know, like if he gets a contract for like, you know, 15 a year, I'd prefer that they let him go. But if he gets ends up signing a deal for like eight or nine a year, like that's still not a bad value given his production. Even if I'd rather not be the team still employing him. I also think you got to exercise good asset management and, you know, maybe you lock him into that deal. And then once he's eligible to be traded, someone's going to be interested in him at that price. I, I would be curious to just, I can I would just be curious to see where the, like big offer sheet would come that they have to worry about. I'm very, I'm fascinated. I, I think it's probably, this happens every year. I, I mean, you even look at Clint Capella, he ended up getting a big deal, but there was just no, like the whole time you knew that he was negotiating against nothing with the Rockets. And so I'm, I'm always just fascinated by what ends up happening to bigs on the market. I mean, Brooke Lopez last year ended up, uh, didn't sign. I think it was like July 17th or something crazy at the, for biannual money. Basically, mm-hmm. so I I don't know what you would what Willie Cauley Stein were going to end up getting. My guess would be though that he's not going to be. I I would be shocked if he got well into eight figures per year. I mean, if he gets more than ten million, maybe eleven million, I, I would be honestly super surprised. Yeah, I mean, it just takes one team though, right? Yeah, and you know we've kind of talked about this amongst ourselves, like okay, who could that team be? And it's like, well, you know, would it would it shock you if like Atlanta threw a deal at him? You know, he would kind of make sense for their style of play. You know, they, you know, maybe you talk yourself into that, you know, I, you know, if Milwaukee loses Brooke Lopez, maybe they, you know, they don't have a whole lot of money to throw at anyone, but you know, maybe they think he could fit just from a, you know, he's long, he's athletic. He could kind of fit their scheme. Yeah. So, I mean, there's teams where he could make sense and you really just need one, GM who didn't watch a lot of Kings games and just looks at the box score because on a box score Willie Cauley Stein looks like a really good player. Right, his his most improved player case at the beginning of the season was uh, wildly strong when people were talking about his, like just the way they were talking about his numbers. And then as the season progressed, and I think people saw more of him, that it like dissipated very quickly. Well, it wasn't even that. I mean, at the beginning of the season, he played out of his mind. It, it was that glimpse of. Okay, if we actually get 82 games of this Willie Cauley Stein, we were all talking about like how much do you extend him for? Like, you know, we got to bring him back if this is what he is now. But like, he just he couldn't even maintain it a full year in a contract year. Uh, do you? See, and one of the reasons why I'm so curious about what the Kings would do with him is you have uh, you have Bagley, you, you have Giles, you have Belitsa still, and then Harrison Barnes uh, they acquired at the trade deadline. Who can pl- I think his best position is the four. You can use him at the three, but if you if you view him as a four and you have Bielita and you have Jaws and you have Bagley, I don't know. I, I don't want to say that Willie Cauley Stein is, is pointless um, because he he might be the only he he wouldn't might be. I would say he's probably the only true five of that gaggle. But do you see Harrison Barnes as a long term fit with the roster? And the the question that's sort of tied into it is: Do you think the Kings are better off if he has expected picks up his player options so that they're not? tempted to offer him a multi-year contract even if it's at a lower price point so i think that i think one way or the other barnes is going to be a king next season like i i mm-hmm. think if he declines that option it's because he and the kings are, are going to do a longer term deal um the one thing that's interesting and you know for for all the crap we like to give the king's front office they actually do a pretty good job with how they structure contracts. Like they haven't had any really bad, bad, bad contracts. Like even their, their mistakes, if you will, have been short term, you know, one or two year deals, you know, things that are easy to get out of, you know, declining contracts. So they've actually managed things pretty well in that regard. Um, you do worry what it would take to lock up Barnes on a long term deal. Cause I really think it's just about the money and, and the cap hit because as a player, I think he fits really well. You know, Barnes has been in the league long enough that he kind of seems like an older guy, but he's still like 26, something like that. Yeah. You know, good locker room presence for the young guys. You know, he's athletic enough. He can get out and run. He can space the floor. He played a great defense for the Kings once he came over at the trade deadline. And really he was finding ways to get his shots within the rhythm of the offense. Like some of his early struggles were just figuring out that rhythm, but he wasn't the ball dominant guy we saw in Dallas. He was a lot closer to the Barnes that he was in Golden State, where 
you know, he's not expected to carry the load, so he can just kind of get his shots where they come. You know, he's capable of playing a little ISO, but he wasn't a distraction from the offense by any means. And so I think that answers the next question, though, if, if we're just going to assume that. Well, and also the thing with Harrison Barnes, too, is so if he does turn, again, I don't think he will, and I, I think you're 100% correct that he'll be back no matter what. If he does turn down a $25.1 million player option, it becomes a matter of, and what does that next deal look like if that's the guaranteed money he turned down? Because if it ends up right. being a three-year deal, you, you figure he probably wants to make at least $40 million in that. And that's, you know, that's not a small number. Right. And, and I think one thing kind of going back to the way that the Kings have been smart with their money is that whatever they do as far as his new contract, like they may overpay a little bit if they keep him longer term. You know, a lot of times we've called that the Sacramento tax, like, Sacramento's not never been a free agent destination. You get someone willing to stay or to sign there, you're generally overpaying a little bit just for that luxury. Um, but if he stays longer term, I am sure that they would structure it in a way to still give themselves flexibility. You know, once Fox and Bagley's extensions come in, because those two are, are really the key centerpieces, and everything else is going to be, you know, even guys like Buddy Heald or Bogdanovich, like those guys are going to be built and structured around Fox and Bagley. Harry's Razors is helping Blue Wire listeners with a better shaving experience. Go to harrys.com slash Blue Wire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Enough with the cheap razors. Go try Harry's now. It's just $3 for our loyal listeners. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your official trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure to go to harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your razor for only $3. Do you think we're going to see more of the... And I mean, we saw... Uh, Filtering out garbage time on cleaning the glass, we saw it was almost a thousand possessions of Giles and Bagley together in the front court. Do you think that's something we see even more of next season? Is that still? I'm a. I think we can guarantee now that Bagley won't have to worry about not starting. And I I don't know if it's going to be if they're planning on using Willie Cauley Stein with him or if they would want Barnes in that situation. Do you see the Giles Bagley front court being more of a even more of a factor though next year? I'm hopeful, but a lot of it does depend on the development of Giles. Um, the reason I say I'm hopeful is I, I see a lot of potential in the pairing of the two of them because you know Giles can operate really well out of the high post, whereas Bagley's you know better off down low on offense. You know you get him the ball down low and he can operate down there. You get it to him further away from the basket, he can still create, but it, it's not ideal for him. Um, whereas Giles put him at the elbow, give him the ball, and he can make things happen. You know, he, he's got that, you know, Chris Weber gene as far as the passing, you know, moving the ball around, those types of things. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of potential, but Giles <clears throat> Giles made a lot of progress as the year went along. Uh, but, yeah, he still needs to kind of take a step forward to, to really be kind of the go-to partner for Bagley. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be a tandem that works in the future, but – uh, I wouldn't be confident that it's there yet. So I guess if you're confident in working in the future, you think that Giles then has like the chops on D or I guess at least the strength on D to hang or be the day fat. You know, it's a, we're in a positionless era and you're looking at the size of both of them, that there'll be a lot of just cross matches and stuff. But I think he, he is your de facto five in that situation. Do you think he has the, just the defensive capacity in those situations or at least to do it eventually, for long stretches. And that's what I'm not sure about. You know, if, if we're going to get there, it has to be because, you know, one or both of them really steps up more on the defensive side. Uh, Bagley was a lot better defensively than I ever thought he would be even as a rookie. So I, I have a lot of hope for him as, you know, a good defender. Uh, he had, you know, some good, you know, help defense instincts as far as shot blocking went, 
Bagley's a really tenacious defender. Like there's a lot of effort, but you know, he's got to get a little smarter with it. You know, he cut his fouling down big time as the season went on, you know, the start of the season, he couldn't stay on the floor because he was fouling, you know, at a rate that, you know, even exceeded what like Zach Collins is doing against the Warriors right now. Um, <laughs> but, but he got better at it as time went on. So again, could it happen? Yes. Am I confident? Eh, we'll see. You know, it, it's one of those things that you never really know how a guy could develop. Um, I like them both as players. I think both of them will be with the Kings for quite a while. But, you know, whether they're paired up together or if there's a, you know, a third key player that's kind of in that mix, you know, and then the other tricky part is, you know, Bielitsa, you know, he's not a good defender, but his shooting, his spacing on offense was huge for the Kings this year. And so I don't know how you take him out of the lineup and maintain the proper spacing because right now neither Bagley or Giles has given you that. I was impressed though with Bagley shooting towards the end of the season. He was at 39% from three on over two attempts per game. And even on like catch and shoot looks inside the arc, just the mm-hmm. the comfort level there, that seemed like he made just major strides as the season wore on. I would absolutely agree. Like, you know, when we list off the things that surprised us, you know, his defense, you know, his his shooting, you know, all those different aspects of the game, I mean, he looked a lot more polished by the end of his rookie season. I mean, and that difference between the start of his rookie year to the end of his rookie year, you know, that kind of growth curve that he demonstrated is not something you see out of a lot of rookies. So, you know, if that's any indication of how he'll adapt to the league, there's a lot to be excited about. He looked super comfortable taking turnaround jumpers when he was down low. Uh, Yeah. And some of the stuff that he did when he was down low, like from face-up spots, I'm wondering if you think that that could eventually translate to where he's attacking from from even further out. Because if you can get to a point where – you if if he's respected as a shooter and then he's able to make these more pump and drives, uh, do you mm-hmm. see that as a realistic, I guess, tool to add to his tool belt more leading into his sophomore year? Or is that something that's just still a little bit too advanced and we'll probably should wait a couple more seasons for? I don't know if it'll be there his sophomore year. I think he wants it to be there, which I think is key. You know, with the younger generation of big men, I mean, they're entering the league with that idea that I need to be able to shoot threes, you know, which is radically different than even just a couple of years ago. And, you know, for him to be able to do it at a decent clip as a rookie, you know, when he didn't show that a lot in college, you know, if he continues to work on that skill, you know, he's got the athleticism, he's got the, the, he's got a really good basketball IQ from what I've seen. Like he can learn things, you know, he's a hard worker. So, I think that the drive and the ability to get there is present. It's just a matter of, you know, when does it get put together? And I, I couldn't say if that's going to be next year or a year or two further down the line. I guess I was more asking if you think maybe he'll have that freedom to do that, or they're still going to be a little bit more conservative with him when he is on that far away from the basket. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, it's so tough to say just because, you know, we don't know what the offense is going to look like. Like, if it was oh, still under, yeah. you know, if it was still under Jaeger, I'd be like, eh, I don't know. Is but, he even going to see the floor or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I get the impression that, you know, whoever is going to be coaching, you know, whether it's Walton or if they end up having to move on to someone else, I think the expectation is being set that, like, you need to set up Fox and Bagley for success. Like that is the, the expectation for whoever is going to coach the Kings. And I, I mean, it's just, it, we, we really have to take our hats off too, is that he Bagley played so well and in a, I don't want to say less than ideal role, but when he didn't have, um, I guess the full backing of his head coach to play so well to the point that making Luka Doncic jokes became tired by like November. Like yeah. that's, <laughs> that's insanely impressive. Um, did with Giles, I can't pretend to be a college basketball expert. I cram like a beginning of April or sometimes not even till May and and then get ready for the draft. Was, was he supposed to be this good of a passer? There was a game where I think it first hit me at how talented he was a passer. It was, I want to say it was against the jazz earlier in, in the season. And he threw like this behind the back one handed pass while he was moving to, uh, Jackson, for a three and then he made this other it was the same game 
made this other like two-handed pass in transition, but without even stopping, like it was out of his, like it didn't even seem like he caught the ball. Was that something that was known about him? Because I had, I had zero clue about, I was, I was blown away just at how talented of a passer he is. Well, the thing about Giles is no one really knew what he could do at the NBA level because his one year in college, he was still very limited coming off of a knee injury. So, you know, in high school, he had been at one point, he was the number one prospect in the country. Right. You know, he had a knee injury and he's, he had had multiple knee injuries over the years. He went to Duke. He tried to play probably too early. Didn't look great. You know, so the Kings got him at the 20th pick and it was kind of that risk, you know, that, can he ever be the player he once was? You know, can he regain his athleticism? Is he ever going to be consistent? All those questions. The Kings shut him down for his fully rookie year just to build strength, make sure he was 100% healthy with no concerns. I mean, they they really built up his core strength, his leg strength, all those different things to make sure there was no overcompensation or anything like that. Uh, so when he came in, there was a lot of hype because players were talking about what they saw him do in practice. You know, media members who saw practice, there was a lot of hype. And then he kind of struggled out the gate and we we're like, okay, so that was nothing. <laughs> but then he's kind of started putting it all together and it's matched up with what we'd kind of heard, you know, that he was this extremely gifted passer. You know, he could score, he could score at multiple levels, you know, tenacious defender, you know, cause even when he's, his foul troubles were because he's guarding guys too aggressively. Right. He just had to figure out kind of where that line was, like what you can get away with in an NBA game, because he is just a fierce defender. You know, he just loves shutting guys down. He's got that killer instinct that is really fun to root for. Um, So yeah, to answer your question in in a very long way, there was talk that he could be that kind of passer but there was really nothing much that you could look at, even from his year at Duke, to really know what to expect from him as an NBA player. Yeah, he. I looked that up while you were talking. So I know I looked up his assist numbers in college earlier, but he played 300 minutes in 26 games, which is nothing yeah. while he was there. Him and and it seemed like uh, offensively, he and Bagley really developed some just nice chemistry. Uh, he was good at finding. Uh, Giles was really good at finding cutters anyway, but uh, it seemed like he always knew where, where Bagley was, and he made some nice passes to him when he was in the dunker spot. And uh, that's the, the offensive fit is, I feel like it's so much cleaner than I think you, you would think it would be, just because we're still talking about, well, can, is Bagley's jumper going to be, you know, a thing now in volume? And Giles, I was actually a little surprised at how, I don't know if I should use the word reliant, but at how many jump shots he actually took, but he's not a guy who's going to, right now go out there and shoot the three ball and yet the offensive fit between them they the offensive rating when they were both on the floor um was 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 fine i think for those minutes and especially in year one of the experiment together and it just it seems so much watching it it feels so much cleaner than i think you would look at it on paper just think about it in theory yeah because i mean in a lot of ways kind of like we were talking about earlier the the nba is kind of squeezing out the fives in a lot of ways you know you tend to go more smaller fours, you know, guys like a Harrison Barnes. So you think about putting Bagley and Giles on the floor together, it kind of goes against what you would think about as the current NBA. But at the same time, both of them have such a varied skill set that it, it, it works. Um, oh, excuse me as I, as I clear my throat there. So <laughs> they are going to have looking at what they're actually going to other moves. They're going to try to make over the offseason. They're, if they renounce Willie Cauley Stein, they can have more than max cap space in the bank. Uh, like they can, if they renounce him, they can pretty much breeze to thirty-five million. I know they have non-guarantees for um, Pharrell and and Mason. Uh, have you given any thought to what wings you would like to see them chase in free agency? And it's I'm not even saying it has to be a star because they have that cap space. We know they're not a star destination. Or or do you not even view wing as like the top priority for them right now? Yeah, I don't see wing as being the top priority. Um, oh, really? Like, they could use some help there for sure. But uh, top priority, I do think that they, you know, assuming that Willie Cauley-Stein does not return, I do think they need a big man, you know, at least for bench minutes and depth purposes. You know, they need someone, 
you know, they really struggled with rim protection and rebounding. And, you know, some of that may be solved with more minutes for Bagley because he, he's a good rebounder. Uh, but they've really struggled with that at times this season. And then the other big thing is backup point guard. I mean, Yogi Ferrell was good at, at times, but they need more from that position. You know, they, they still really struggled there. Have you thought about any guys that you'd like to see them look at in free agency for either of those spots? Uh, there's a lot of different guys that Kings fans would like to see potentially fill those roles. Uh, for something like you know the big man position, there's talk amongst Kings fans at least. I don't know if the Kings will actually pursue him, but you know, Kings fans are kind of looking at guys like uh, like uh, Nikola Vucevic um, just to you know. I, I don't know how the fit works with the guys there to have in place, but just a young, talented big man who could possibly be available. You know, so that that's appealing. Uh, for back a point guard, you know, Kings fans have kind of talked themselves into the idea of, well, what if we could get Beverly to come be Fox's backup? Oh, God, you know, and, could you imagine? Imagine <laughs> them playing together. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it'd be a beautiful thing. I just don't know if it's, if it's realistic. So, um you know, it, it's tough. I mean, the biggest thing with backup point guard is you, know, you need someone who can kind of control the offense, but also create a shot. You know, there were times when you know Yogi Ferrell was would go cold and couldn't really create for others, and you know, it, you were just like looking at the bench, like, okay, when is Jaeger going to put Fox back in? Um, you know, a name that a lot of us thought the Kings were going to go after at the trade deadline, and they ended up not, uh, would be a guy like maybe Jeremy Lin. Um, he has him a great in Toronto, but you know, he gives you a little more size. He can shoot. You know, he's not gonna, you know, take over games on a regular basis or anything. But you know, as a competent backup to kind of spell Fox when he needs a breather, I think the Kings could do worse than a guy like that. Yeah, he would be. I know he's been battling back problems in Toronto. Yeah, he was available for Game Four and still didn't play. I'd, I'd just like to. Fred Van Fleet had a better game, but he's been so bad. I'd like to see. He was good in Atlanta. Got to the free throw line. Yeah. A bunch. He would be a super interesting fit. I feel like Vucevic could probably work in Sacramento. He's a lot better defensively than people give him credit for. Just he's smart around the rim and he also just has more active hands, I think, when he's pulled away from the basket. But it almost seems like it'd be a waste because you have Bagley and Giles and then Vucevic. It's just like an overkill of uh I, I don't want to say traditional bigs, but closer to traditional bigs. And to have the three of those guys, I I just almost feel like um, I, I mean, Vucevic can shoot the three, which I guess helps. I just wonder if, uh, I just, I don't know. I guess I feel like it's, it's a waste to pay someone like him for what it would cost. He's not going to get near max money, but I would think he's, you know, he made 13.3 this year. It might cost like half of your, if the Kings are working with the full amount of their cap space, it might cost half of their cap space just to get him. Mm-hmm. And a guy that I could see being possibly an even better fit, even though he's a, a lesser name, would be a guy like Dwayne Dedman. Yes, that was the name uh, I was hoping you'd bring up. Yeah, I mean, so we've, we've been talking about him, at, you know, the, the Sacktime Royalty crew, about, like, that would kind of be our, I think, almost our ideal scenario, even over Vucevic. You know, he's going to probably come at a lower price tag. He can shoot. He's a good defender. You know, he can block shots. Like, does all those little things, and, you know, it seems like it'd be a good pairing. Yeah, and I think it he's probably not someone that you want. His his rebounding numbers are good. I don't know if I guess you'd want someone like him to be your primary rebounder, but like you said, if you're playing with Bagley, then that doesn't really become an issue. Mm-hmm. And he and when you say good three point shooter, by the way, for the listeners, like he's not he might even be understating it. Like he was just he shot thirty eight point two percent from deep this year on almost five attempts per thirty six minutes, and that's coming after a year where he shot thirty five point five percent on three point three attempts per thirty six minutes. Like this is a guy in Atlanta, and his threes this year weren't even he. She shot some of the corners, but a lot of them were above the break stuff. And so he would be a name. I think I've named him for too many teams, but if, <laughs> if I had a count on my hand, I think Sacramento would be one of the top three or four fits that I would actually really like to see him play for. Yeah, it's weird. He's like a three and D big man, which yeah. you know, normally we think about that for wings, but. <laughs> Um, and a backup point guard is just a little bit tougher. Do you think, um, you know, we don't really have to go, they don't have a ton of key free agents, but do you think they will get rid of either Pharrell and or Mason or will both of them be back? Um, I mean, I think if they can find an upgrade in free agency, they would probably shed one of them. Um, they're very similar. And I think, 
I think of the two, I'd rather keep Yogi, but, um, you know, he would cost a little bit more than, than Frank would. So yeah, I could see the Kings going either way, but I think that, that they would like to upgrade that position. Um, if they can't though, I think that there are worse things that you could do than roll into the season with the same three point guards that they had last year. How would you feel about them being a team that threw all the money at Malcolm Brogdon to see if the Bucks matched it? I, I wouldn't be opposed. I, I think that he makes a ton of sense, you know, cause he could, you know, back up, you know, one or the two, he, you know, he does all those little things. I'm a great shooter you know, provides that spacing if he's playing next to Fox. I mean, he, you know, he works in so many different ways that I, I'd be in favor. And that might be the team just because I know Buddy Heald's nearing uh, his next contract, but Fox has uh, two more years left on his rookie scale. Giles has two. Bagley has, I mean, he's not exactly the new rookie scales. When you look at the numbers, I say rookie scales, and it's like Bagley's going to make $11.3 million in his fourth year. Right. That's, that's <laughs> amount, but uh, they might be one of those teams that can justify, quote-unquote, overpaying, or at least giving out the money in the offer sheet to force the Bucks' hand to see, like, hey, we just gave Malcolm Brockton $21 million a year. Are you going to match it? Yeah. Um, What is the – I guess the – I apologize if you said this before, but what is the primary thing you're looking to get out of a backup point guard there then? I know you mentioned just, I guess, someone who can just run the simple sets in the half court. Is that the main priority at this point? Are you at all intrigued by seeing more of uh, Bogdanovich at, at point guard lineups? So Bogdanovich, I mean, he did a good job as the backup point guard basically during stretches when the team needed him to be because they didn't have someone better. So, you know, ideally I'd like to see someone that could come in and run the second unit to where Bogdan can be at his more natural wing position because, you know, he, he kind of was forced to do a lot of different roles this year. And I think it, you know, that along with an early season knee injury, I, I think that all that kind of led to him having a kind of a disappointing year uh, compared to what he did his first year with the team. Um, so, you know, I think yeah, you know, that's part of why I think that backup point guard is more important than a backup wing because if you get a backup point guard, Bogdanovich is your backup wing, <laughs> and, that's true. Yeah. and he really should be. He he's, makes a lot more sense than <laughs> having him be your point guard. So, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I want someone who you know, has the size where they can't just be shut down the way Farrell was at times. Uh, Frank Mason has the same issue. He's undersized as well. So someone who has a little bit of size and ideally I'd like someone that is capable of playing minutes as the backup point guard or playing some minutes alongside Darren Fox, you know, cause Fox is going to play a lot of minutes. So if you're signing someone as a good backup point guard, there's not going to be a ton of minutes just at that spot. But if it's someone who's capable and you know is a decent enough shooter and, and all those different things to be able to also play a few minutes at the two, I think that's ideal. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking too. This year's point guard market free agency. I mean, Kyrie Irving's there, Kemba Walker's there, but like after them, it gets it gets pretty rough. Yeah, it's rough. not great. It's um, not great. <laughs> I guess like a a Delon a Delon Wright would work, but the shooting is is off there. He can certainly play some too. He did it a bunch with Kyle Lowry, but that's, I'm just r- running through these names and I think I'm officially on board with them just throwing a ton of money at Malcolm Brogdon <laughs> and seeing if it sticks. Yeah. Um, I will get you out of here on a couple of listener questions. If you would be so kind to answer them. Sure. They're going to be overlapping with what we just talked about. It looks like, but uh, I think they'll just uh, hopefully get fu- uh, your definitive verdicts on them. Uh, Johnny P at someone beat GSW. Asks, should they bother re-signing Cauley Stein? And I'll expand on it. I know you don't really like talking money, but if someone came and let's say he gets the like mid-level money, if it's $9 million a year, is that, are you still going out there and looking at trying to get just a better fit? Maybe it costs, like a Deadman could end up costing around the same, but it's probably a better fit. So I'd much rather spend $9 million a year on Deadman than Cauley Stein. Um, I think where it kind of comes down at that point is you do have to rely on the front office to have done their homework and to have an idea of what the lay of the land looks like. Because if you think that you can realistically get one of those other guys, then yeah, let Collie Stein walk. Uh, if those other guys are, you know, hotter commodities than expected and the market for backup centers is drying up, like 
you've resigned Colley Stein at nine million a year because that's not a bad value. And if he's under that contract for several years, he's probably movable. And I think the Kings would have moved him this summer, or I'm sorry, um, this trade deadline if they could have, but no one wanted to pick him up as an expiring and then potentially be on the hook to pay him. If he's cost-controlled for a couple of years, I think he's a movable piece. I was convinced he was going to be a wizard at the trade deadline for some reason. Well, that's because it would have made a lot of sense for the Wizards to give us Otto Porter, but yeah, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> yeah, that um, I couldn't believe they sold so low on him. Actually, I thought the Kings could have. I thought a few teams, including the Kings and the Jazz, could have beat what Chicago gave up. I think the Kings could have, but from the talk we heard, uh, when the Kings were having conversations with the Wizards, the Wizards just weren't budging on their asking, and it was more than the Kings wanted to give. Yes, because Bobby Portis or and Jabari Parker is that that is the package. I'm just curious what their asking price was if that's the offer that won out. Kudos to the Kings then for I'm always <laughs> teams are going to draw lines and just not cross them. That's fine, but I would love to know what they wanted from the Kings that they ended up accepting or what the Kings were trying to lowball them with. With which kudos to the Kings if Bobby Portis and Jabari Parker in a second was the deal that got it done. I'm trying to remember what it was. I, I can't remember if it was reported or not. I'll see if I can find it real quick while we're talking. Um, this is another big man question. Uh, Varun Shankar, I apologize if I uh, butchered it. It's at by Varun Shankar. Uh, let's say the Kings have the option of signing Nikola Vucevic. Would you, if he's willing to come, would you do it? Or would you prefer, we just talked about cheaper options, even Willie Cauley-Stein, would you prefer those alternatives um knowing what it would cost to get vooch in sacramento so like i would rather dramatically overpay vooch than bring back willie collie stein really <laughs> uh, oh yeah <laughs> I, I i'd rather do a huge overpay to vooch than than bring back willie collie stein um even if i ended up regretting it a couple years down the road um but um yeah, I mean it's it's always tricky, and you know it's impossible to know you know what else you could get. You know, if the Kings did end up overpaying, you know, against that Sacramento tax that I mentioned earlier, you know, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. The Kings have a relatively clean cap sheet as long as they don't you know completely destroy everything with like an escalating contract year over year or anything like that. You know, get them like you know just under. They can handle an overpay right now. Uh, and if you're doing it to dramatically upgrade your talent in the front court, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I'm hoping I, I find this a little funny. I'm hoping you find it funny. Jay Peters at Zisa Zisa underscore peculiar asked, what should they offer John Sammons? <laughs> lifetime contract that's what they should offer john Sommers. <laughs> what was that deal it was actually for it was three years and or was it four what was it three years and like 25 million or something like that i don't even remember what it was it was a lot of money back then though uh you're gonna have to specify which time we had john Sommers because we had him twice <laughs> i think i'm thinking back to the like the mid 2000s one yeah <laughs> I mean, kudos for, I'm looking at, John Sammons had $59 million in NBA career earnings. Major props to him for carving out. I think he got a lot of that from the Kings. (laughs) Yeah, he signed with them in 2006 as a free agent. Um, When did he sign with them again? Or did they just acquire him again? I'm not not seeing it for some reason. Yeah, the second one was a trade. Uh, So they got him from, I think it was with Chicago or Milwaukee. Um, was that 2015? Is this this trade? Uh, that his I can't even his transaction sheet is all over the place right now. But <laughs> um, the final question actually comes from me. So this let's if they don't end up spending a ton of money on free agents, do you think they're past the point in their development stage where they would take back bad contracts in exchange for picks, and that this is very clearly a team that? Well, I think getting rid of Jaeger kind of showed a commitment to the youngsters and this nucleus, are they, are they done re I don't want to say are they done rebuilding, but are they, are they in win now mode? Or do you think that that's a move? Let's say they still end up with a ton of cap space that they would be willing to consider maybe taking back some bad money in exchange for a draft pick or even a prospect compensation. I 
think they'd be willing. Um, I think ideally the Kings would like to be in win now mode and, and make the playoffs, but they've been pretty consistent in saying that, you know, they're not going to just try to take a shortcut that they're willing to be patient. They're willing to do it the right way because obviously Sacramento has seen a lot of attempts at taking shortcuts that backfired and didn't work out. You know, Fox is young enough. Bagley's young enough. And that's really the core. So you have some time. Um, so I, I wouldn't be stunned if they did that, but at the same time, uh, what we saw at the trade deadline when they were one of like two teams with cap space is that they were putting a pretty high price on that. They weren't willing to take on bad contracts for nothing. Like they were demanding to get a pretty decent return on that. Mm -hmm. So it it always depends on the other team too, if they're willing to, to give up what the Kings consider good value for that bad money. Nick Neendorf asked at uh, Neendorf 21, and I'm assuming he, he asked, what is Bagley's ceiling in terms of the range of positions you can play him next season? I'm taking that as, <laughs> can you play him at the three? And I'm not sure if he's, if that's a joke, that's congratulations. That's like great subtle humor. If it's not, um, I, I hope Bagley at the three is just no longer a thing that's in our, our discourse. Well, in his defense, it's something Vladi Divac keeps saying. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> as long as Vladi's saying it, I think it's a fair question. Um, I do not think that anyone should ever try to play Marvin Bagley at the three. Uh, I think that you know his shooting and all of that is getting to the point where, like, if he turns into a legit three-point shooter, there's going to be that question, like, hey, should you put him into like a supersize lineup at the three, but his best skills are still the things he can do around the basket. I mean, his, his, his second jump, his leaping, his putbacks, like his athleticism, his creativity and getting to the rim. That is his top skill. Like that is what needs to be emphasized above all else for him. So the shooting is nice and the shooting is going to keep defenses honest. It's going to create other opportunities but that should never be the primary focus for him. He He's definitely a big man and, and should be treated as such. I'm wondering, I don't know if that's the other reason I would be hesitant. Obviously not the main reason, but if you invest a ton of money in another big man, I feel like then the temptation to play Giles Bagley and whoever you sign together is going to be stronger. I do wonder if I'm mostly kidding, but if, if Lade's feeling at all empowered by the lineup he saw Toronto run out where they had Siakam, <laughs> Gasol, and uh, Serge Ibaka on the court at the same time the other night. I'm not, I wonder if that empowers his uh, whole Bagley at the three ideology. Yeah, um, let's hope. <laughs> uh, and this is our final one. It comes from Sherilyn Clark at Wusher. Uh, what do you see as the Kings' biggest overall need to reach the playoffs based on statistics compared to other teams in the Western Conference. I'm going to rephrase that a little bit, and I know you talked about backup point guard. Uh, is their best chance reaching the play- of reaching the playoffs in the West, which remains brutal next season, just more leaps from the players that they already have? Or do you think that it's something that could be swayed by what they do in free agency? I think free agency will be important because there was a lot of times last season where the Kings looked really good and then they had to go to their bench and they just didn't have the depth uh, and things would kind of fall apart. Um, At the same time, though, the most critical factor is going to be that continued development of Fox and Bagley and then to a lesser extent. You know, guys like Giles and Buddy and and Bogdanovich continuing to improve. so the the bench is important. Like you you need to have the depth to really make a a, a deep you know a real playoff run. You know the Kings kind of fell apart down the stretch as other teams really stepped it up. But yeah, I mean where Fox and Bagley goes, the team is going to follow. I mean that it, those two are the keys to the future. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for letting me commandeer so much of your time, nearly an hour. Uh, it was great talking about the Sacramento Kings with you. Everyone needs to be following Greg on Twitter. If you are not already at G at G W I S S. He's the editor at Sacktown royalty. I, I do hope that we're going to continue to see maybe afraid of Fox list coming out on Twitter from you next year. 
You know, I, I, I took a year off after the... Uh, I thought the, I still saw them. The first... Maybe it other people. I could have sworn that was you this season. I guess it wasn't. <laughs> well, I dropped them occasionally. Uh, <laughs> it kind of took on a life of its own where, you know, anytime players were out, people were, you know, talking about on Twitter about it. But, um, you know, it was... It was more fun when it was a joke, and now that he's really good, it's, <laughs> it's not as much fun. Like, part, I mean, the whole thing started with me, you know, riling up Lakers fans. So that was the whole point of it originally. But yeah, what was that article? It was a, a, it was like a comprehensive list or something of players who are afraid of De'Aaron Fox. It was it was something like that. I got yeah, I remember this- reading that and just laughing my ass off. Yeah, so uh, at the end of his rookie season, I, I wrote an article that was the comprehensive list of every player who was afraid of De'Aaron Fox, and it was every player who missed a game due to what I determined to be a suspicious injury, uh, <laughs> you know, broken legs or you know, <laughs> whatever it might be, uh, that they were out for a game against De'Aaron Fox, and uh, the list was long and uh, prestigious. I mean, really big stars were really afraid of Fox his rookie year. So I just pulled it up while you were talking, and I think my favorite inclusion, <laughs> probably just because of how, how random it is, is Joakim Noah being on there. <laughs> well, when, once it got going, I had to find someone like every game, <laughs> and it, it became a challenge. <laughs> well, if if you do uh, you know, reboot those lists, I, I support it. I got a kick out of them, and I will still get a kick out of them even when he is super good. Again, follow Greg on Twitter, even if just for his fantastic Twitter background. I really like the uh, Bogdanovich, De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald wallpaper you have going on. He is at uh, GWIS, at G-W-I-S-S. Uh, thanks once again, Greg, for talking with me. And until next time to everyone else, I leave you with a shout-out to the legendary Kyle Anderson. <laughs>